I don't want to be a religious robot. You ever maybe heard somebody say something similar to that? That if I come to the church, if I accept Christianity, um, that I'm going to be some type of spiritual robot with no feelings, just going through a bunch of works to please some God that's out there. I just don't want to be that person. Anybody who would make this type of statement, a statement that would be very similar to say that I have no choice, that I have no joy in following this man, Jesus, they're completely missing it altogether. And we should not give up on this person. We should continue to share with them the joy that is found in Christ because the truth of this person is that they are a robot and they are a spiritually dead robot, which means that a spiritually dead robot only does what a spiritually dead robot knows what to do, and that is to sin and to keep sinning and to sin even more. No, it is those who have been set free in Christ who are no longer robots. Um, A movie came out in 1975 called The Stepford Wives, um, and they since remade it back in the early 2000s. Like Willy Wonka, I would encourage you to go see Willy Wonka, but I'm not going to encourage you to go see this movie, okay? Um, Unless you want to, unless you've already seen it. Who's seen it? Okay. All right. There you go. Shame on you. No, I'm just kidding. All right. No, it's it's really not that bad. Um, But in this movie, uh, the, the whole point is this. This, this family moves from the city into this suburb, this perfect little town. And there in this perfect little town are these perfect housewives. They do everything right. They are pristine. They are beautiful. They have their dresses all perfect. And they are wonderful at doing all the chores in the home it doesn't take long for the family to realize that something's not right here. Something's a little off. It's a little too perfect. And what they realize is that in this community, the men have turned their wives into robots uh, to be the perfect wife. Now, I don't know how many of you ladies would take joy in that. Probably not many. Um, But that's not how marriage works. And that's not how our relationship with God works. You don't become a Christ follower and then become his robot where he just programs you and all of a sudden you're just on overdrive with no freedom. No, you have been set free to obey. You have been set free to follow. You have been set free to trust. You have been set free to serve. And I want this to be very clear today as we go into our passage because these men that Jesus is addressing are spiritually dead robots. They're doing what their sin calls them for to do. And in this work, it deals with religion. So this is a great text for us today, especially our church in this uh, geographical location to understand that you can be religious. You can have religion. You can even say you believe in God and be lost and separated from him. And so follow with me in Matthew 23, starting in verse 23 and then in verse 24. In this passage, Jesus continues to confront the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law 
justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So we've looked in the last three weeks to four weeks at the seven woes. And here we are on the fourth woe today. And so I'm going to revisit the previous three woes. But once again, I'll remind you this word woe has within it the idea of wrath and sorrow together. So whenever we have sorrow, it's hard for us to have anger. And when we have anger, it's hard for us to have true sorrow. It's hard for those two things to mix together. But for Jesus, as he's addressing these men, he has this godly wrath and this godly sorrow towards them. And so these are the woes. And here's what a woe does. It illuminates while it strikes. So it's to teach, but it's also to bring judgment. To say, this is what is going to happen to you. So then he calls them hypocrites. He calls them hypocrite more than once. In fact, we'll see it's the third time today that he calls them hypocrites, which means to interpret or play the part. So they've been playing the part of the religious man. And Jesus is here to call them out to say, take off your mask. I will expose you today. So the first woe that we looked at was shutting the door of the kingdom. That's saying that Jesus Christ is not the way, the truth, and the life. How we can do this today, we can say that there's multiple ways to heaven. There's not. There's only one way, and that's through Jesus. So even offering and saying that there's other ways, you're then shutting the door to the actual kingdom through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So that was the first woe. The second woe was false identity, making false converts. We can travel. We can do mission trips. We can invest in ministries here in town and yet do a harmful work of making false converts, giving people the false impression that they are followers of Jesus Christ, making them more a person headed to hell. And then there's the third woe, evading the truth, which we looked at last week. And he said, you're the blind leading the blind. You make these oaths, but you leave a way out of it so that you don't have to hold to your word. They were honest as long as it was convenient. But last week, he didn't call them hypocrites. No, that was the first week. That was the second week, the the two woes, meaning. And then on the third row, he doesn't call them hypocrites. No, he just says, you're blind guides, you're blind fools, you're blind men. So I don't know what's better, to be called a hypocrite or to be called these things. But then Jesus continues to critique their play act. And for the third time, he calls them hypocrites. He says, for you tithe, mint, and deal, and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and hypocrites, those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And so Jesus is not telling them that their tithing is wrong, that they shouldn't tithe. But he's saying, no, you, you, you've put all your attention on this tithing and you've neglected something else that's greater. You rejected one for the other. William Barclay says this, there is nothing easier than to observe all the outward actions of religion and yet be completely irreligious. You can have it all, all the outward actions You can fool everyone, but at the heart, you're irreligious. Is that you today? You're more focused on all the actions, all the things you must do, instead of being focused on the joy which is following 
Christ and letting your actions come forth from that. And so here this verse deals with tithing. And so for clarification, uh, the focus is on extreme tithing while neglecting the weightier matters. This is not a passage in support of New Testament tithing. Some like to point to this passage and say, see, the church should practice tithing. This is it right here. Jesus mentions it. He's commanding Christians to tithe. No, I do not believe that that is the case in this passage. Tithing is of an Old Testament principle. You gave a tithe so that you could support the Levitical priesthood. And there was an inheritance in exchange for their service in the tabernacles. We see this in Numbers 18. It consisted of food, the seed of the land, and fruit of the trees, and the fullness of the wine press. And the Levites were to offer from this inheritance a heave offering, which was a tithe off of the tithe, to the priest. And they were to choose the best portion. And normally money was not used as a tithe. It was, it was animal. It was, it was plant. It was food. But money would be used if you had to go a far distance. And then once you got there, then you could buy your things you needed. And so, with that, is it wrong to tithe? You say, hold on, now I tithe. And I've grown up always hearing that we should tithe. If you listen closely, when we come to our time of giving, we don't call it a time of giving your tithe. We call it a time of giving your offering. Because a tithe was set up for the Levitical priesthood. We don't fall under that priesthood. We fall under the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And so when we come to give, we give generously. We should give out of joy, not giving out of law. So there may be some you say, hey, I give my 10% and I'm good. But maybe you're not. Because if your heart is that you just settle on a 10% law-based giving, is that really honoring the Lord? Or should you be given out of generosity for all that he has done for you? Now, here's the flip side of this. As soon as you mention that, hey, tithing is really not a New Testament principle, there is a fear. There's fear among people who would go, oh, no, don't say that because now people will give less. I am truly convinced that once you begin to focus on what Christ has done for you and all that God has given you, you don't give less, you give more. And so do we don't come to a law-based idea of giving. Some feel guilty because you can't give 10% of your earnings right now. I say give what you can. Give with joy. Give with generosity. As we see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you had a church called Macedonia. And they were a poor church. And they gave what they had and what they didn't even have. In fact, they were the model. The model was not the church that had all the money. The model was the church that didn't have much money at all. They were the model in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Go back and read for yourself. We, we spent quite a significant time on that, I believe, last year. So what is the point? We should give. We should give in great abundance. We should give with great joy. And you should give as the Lord so leads you to give from your heart as you pray to him and you trust in how he leads you. And trusting that God will lead this local church and other local churches to carry out his name. And so when it comes to this passage, what, what does it mean then? What's being dealt with? Extreme tithing. That's what's being dealt with here. Those who have gone to the very minute 
details of religion while overlooking the most important things. Mint and dill and cumin were spices and small leaves. And yet they would spend the time, the petty time, dividing up and bringing this in. I I just see it in little baggies, okay? They're bringing it in and saying, here is my tithe. Look at this, okay? I went to great extents to bring this tithe. Everybody checking this out. So even in the small little tithes, there was pride in these men. They were majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. Hold on to that. So the tithing of these small plants is, is really not the problem, though. It's not the problem. It's not the problem that they divided up these, these spices, these seeds, and that they would bring them in. That wasn't the problem. He says, no, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So the problem is legalism. And that's why I couldn't wait to get to this passage in Matthew 23 so that we as a church can deal with legalism. We're steeped in legalism. We're brought up in legalism. If There's a good chance if you've been brought up in the legal, local church, you've been brought up in some type of understanding of legalism. The must-dos, the must-haves, or else God is not happy. So the problem was the focus on small, meticulous, minute practices while neglecting the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters of the law? What are the, what's bigger than tithing? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These are the things that matter. These are the things that are so vitally important that they're skipping over. Because they're saying, you know what? I give my tithe. You know what? I am faithful. You know what? Every day I do the right service. So I'm good. And many of us are like that at times. I've done my job. I've done my work. I've given my portion. Go to somebody else. Micah 6, 6 through 8. Here we see what the prophet writes. He says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? I mean, if if you're going to go before God, what do you bring God? What can you bring God to satisfy Him? I mean, we give each other gifts. We kind of know what each other like, but God... He says, well, what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? That's where he starts, but then it escalates. Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Maybe if I just give a whole bunch of rams, thousands of them, maybe he'll be pleased. With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Maybe if I go that route, God will be pleased with me. Shall I get my firstborn for my transgression and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? We've got to get beyond this idea that we have to keep giving something to God and understanding that he has given it all to us. And as we receive this goodness, this grace, this gift, we go out and we serve. And we serve well. And we don't look at it as if it's somebody else's problem to deal with. Here's the problem with legalism. Gerhardus Voss says this. 
Legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship. It obeys, but it does not adore. That's legalism. It obeys. It does everything the right way. Let me check it off and make sure I have it right. But it does not adore. Do you adore Christ Jesus? Do you adore him? That when we sing, oh, it's out of adoration. That when you serve, it's out of adoration. It's not because, hey, man, these people are self-entitled. Why do I need to serve them? Why do I need to pray for them? They're the ones who need to get their act together. Why do I need to be concerned about justice here? Why do I need to be concerned about freedom here? Why do I need to be concerned about sharing love here? They don't deserve it. But when you're caught up in your adoration of Jesus Christ, you know you don't deserve it. So then we give it freely. We give it freely. We understand that this obeying rules making sure we do right and wrong, not what's wrong. God's not sitting there going, hey, very good day today. Way to go. Good checkup. Good checkup. I'll see you tomorrow. It's not how it works. Their zeal for obedience is directed in the wrong place because let me tell you where that type of zeal is directed. It's directed not to God. It's directed to self. It's directed to self. If you're thinking you do these things like being a faithful church member in attendance or that you're always here when the church doors are open. I heard that one growing up, right? Hey, I'm, anytime the church doors are open, I'm there. Better believe it. But we use these as excuses for other things in which we're lacking as if it can cover for that. That's the problem here. You're saying, yes, you tithe. You tithe. I mean, you go to the far extents of tithing but you're using it as an excuse to fail in these other areas, and that will not do. If this minute practice was for the glory of God, then surely we would see it in their actions towards others. Towards others. Because after all, that's why you're here, follower of Christ. That's why God just doesn't take you in the moment when you're saved. So I say, why don't he just take us at salvation? Why do we got to still be here? Well, you know what I call that? I call that being a spool brat. You know why? Because you have been given everything. The greatest gift. I've been given everything. And we're sitting here going, God, do we really have to be here? Just zap me up to heaven now. I just forget being here. I just see this God looking back at us and saying, go tell people about me. Go tell them what I've done in your life. Tell them that I've set you free. Tell them that you used to not acknowledge me as God, but now that you do acknowledge me as God. Go tell them, you are the ones I'm sending forth. Go. These men didn't want to go proclaim about King Jesus. No, they were denying that Jesus was king. You see, it was not for the glory of God, but for the glory of self. Therefore, their attitude is not glorifying to God or helpful towards others because their hearts are rooted in self. This is what E. Stanley Jones says. He says, every self-centered person is a self-disrupted person. Are you a self-disrupted person? Everything going through the lens of you or is it going through the lens of Christ? Do you say, I just need religion and I'll have peace? I just need religion and I'll have some happiness. 
Well, you tell people, just find religion. Just find, re- yeah, yeah, go find religion. What is religion? It's to look after the widows and the orphans. Why would you do that? Because of Christ? You want to find hope? You want to find peace? You want to find joy? You want to find the meaning of being here, Christian? It's Christ Jesus. It's Christ Jesus. It it doesn't get any more complicated than that. It's it's quite simple. It's Jesus Christ. That's why you're here. That's why you're here. For these men, they didn't want it to be about Jesus Christ. That's why later they would crucify him. Russell Kelly says the scribes and Pharisees had gone to every extreme to make law-keeping a burden instead of a delight. And I think that helps to kind of diagnose maybe where we are. If being a Christian is more of a burden to you than it is a delight. Or maybe that you think you're a Christian. And you're trying to do these things and it's more of a burden than it is a delight. You're so caught up in trying to get everybody else to believe that you have it all together. That you're faithful enough. That you're good enough. That you attend enough. That you know enough scripture. That it's a burden instead of a delight. Galatians 5, 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Can everybody in the room just say freedom? Freedom. Freedom. Not for burdens. Not for strenuous activity. Not so that we can play a part. But for freedom, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. No, no, no. Again? Again? Yeah. You used to be enslaved, and you no longer are. So don't submit yourselves to that idea of slavery. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my, my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know what man is in search of? Not money, not fame, not popularity, not honor. Rest in his soul. For he wrestles with it every day. He's his own worst enemy. He's his own worst enemy nightmare. Rest for the soul comes through Christ and Christ alone. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let us not fool ourselves to think that these Pharisees and scribes are standing there with restful souls. No. They're in turmoil. They're being called out. They're being exposed. Which leads us to this question. How do you spend your time and energy and resources? How do you spend your time, Pharisees, scribes? How do you spend your resources? What are you doing? Because the problem is the mismanagement of the tithe and the opportunities. Because tithing, in its principle here, when still following the Old Testament model, tithing should be an expression of compassion for those dependent on others. You give because you have compassion upon other people. But they're lacking in compassion. The Levites, the orphans, the widows, the sojourners, they should benefit from the tithe. 
That's why it should be done, but that's not the heart of these scribes and Pharisees. No, it's for themselves. And so then, once again, he goes back to it. He says, you blind guides. You ever been in an argument with somebody and they only have like one cool catchphrase or whatever it is to put you down? (laughs) They can't think beyond that, okay? And so when it comes to this, we look to Jesus and we go, can you, can you not think of something else than just to call? Okay, you get the point. You've already called them blind guides. Um, you're calling them blind again. Do you not have anything else you can say? No, God has plenty to say. But when we see this in Scripture and there's a repetition, it's because he's making a point. He's reminding them over and over and over again, you are spiritually blind. In fact, when did Nicodemus come to Jesus the first time? He came to Jesus Was it in the morning? Was it in the afternoon? Or was it at night? It was at night. He came to him in the evening, at at dark, which the physical elements around him revealed what was happening inside of him. He was spiritually dark. He came seeking out Jesus, wondering, hey, you're a good teacher. Tell me what else. And Jesus says, you must be born again. And for his darkened heart to try to understand that, he was confused, but later we see and believe that he did understand as he associated with Christ after the cross. But for these men, they're blind. And he says, you're straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, we all know what gnats are, right? I mean, the worst thing about a gnat is when they fly up your nose and cause you to sneeze seven times, right? We have gnats all around us. They literally bug us, right? And then you have this camel. We're not used to camels. Uh, I hadn't seen very many camels walking through Valdosta. Um, why does Jesus mention a camel? Because they used camels. They saw camels all the time. Camels were the biggest animal. And, and I've come across a camel before, and it was me. I mean, camels do spit at you. Uh, this one did. Kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. It's all good. But camels, big, huge. He's saying, hey, let me bring reference here. This small, tiny, unclean animal and this huge unclean animal. Both of them unclean. And one you're straining at, meaning when you go to drink your wine, when you go to drink, you are filtering it through and you're looking for any tiny gnats. You're gnat picking. I had to. All right, there it is. And then from there, he says, in all this gnat picking, in all this very precise measure, you're drinking a camel. It's that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous thinking. This isn't the only time that Jesus has mentioned a camel. Mentioned him for us a few chapters earlier, Matthew 19, 24, when he's talking about the rich man. And he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. And here's what we like to do with that passage. We like to say, okay, the eye of the needle, what it was, is it it was a hole in the city wall, an entrance into the city wall. And if the camel would get down on its knees and work its way through, he could get... Camels don't do that. They don't get down and work their way through. They're awkward. They're big. They don't get through the eye of a needle. What he's talking about is the eye of a needle that you sow with. He's saying it is impossible You will never, ever see a rich man enter into heaven on his own riches. It is only when he is made rich in Christ Jesus. Do you get that? So once again, he brings out the camel. 
He said, I'm going back to the camel, guys. Here it is. You're focused on the gnat that you're swallowing a camel. You're missing it. You're putting your attention in the wrong places. If you know the law and follow the law, you should be like me. That's what Jesus is pointing out to them. Because Jesus is upholding the law to perfection. And he cares about the justice. He cares about loving others. He cares about the faithfulness to the Father. So Jesus calls out their most tedious task while also exposing their greatest neglect. The ultimate neglect was this. They did not recognize him. This is their greatest problem. And for you today, if you do not recognize that Jesus is the Lord, this is your greatest problem in life. Your greatest problem. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. You can be religious. You can fool everybody in this room. To what victory? To what point? I mean, come on, you guys are great, but it's not worth living our lives for each other because we're all going to kneel before him one day. That we are focused on glorifying him and that we don't work on straining out gnats and then swallowing camels, meaning that we're self-centered. William Temple said this. He says, the only way to deliver me from my self-centeredness is by winning my entire heart's devotion, the total allegiance of my will to God. And this can only be done by the divine love of God disclosed by Christ in his life and death. If we ignore this and we just focus on works, on good behavior, on the things we ought to do while neglecting Christ Jesus in the weightier matters, we will make people more a child of hell. If we don't focus on Christ in true repentance, it's possible that people could join here and we could make them more a child of hell by being here. And I believe that happens in many local churches around the world, many of them in the United States. Let's clap. Let's be happy. Let's give. Let's be joyful people. Let's celebrate. No need to be sad. No, uh-uh. No need to mourn. No. Let's all feel good. That's one way. Another way is to make people feel bad about every last thing where you never have joy. You better be here. You better not miss when we meet. You better always give. I'm going to go behind you. I'm going to check whether you're giving or not. I don't do that, by the way. Okay, disclaimer. But that's what some people are a part of. That's not freedom. That's slavery. It's not joy in giving. Now you're bound to man's opinion. That's not how it should be. We should be overwhelmed by the goodness of God, by His kindness towards us. That's what motivates us to serve. That's what should motivate us to give. I mean, speaking of giving, if you're looking at it and you're going, I, I can't give financially right now. I've got too many other things. You shouldn't just take this passage and go, oh, good. See, we don't have to give. Like, that's, that's not the point. It should encourage you to look at your life and to examine the things which you give towards and go, here's the local church advancing the kingdom of God, making disciples, 
how will I give to that? And being a disciple of Christ Jesus and all he's done for me, how will this spur me on to give joyfully? So church, this serves as an evaluation for us today. Not only in giving financially, but where do we stand on weightier matters when it comes to justice and mercy and faithfulness? Where are you on these things? Jonathan Edwards says this. He says, the intellectual life and the passionate life should be friends. Should be friends. You should strive to obey. But then with compassion and with love, you should go to the world and share the gospel. The intellectual life and the passionate life should be friends, not enemies. Without the slightest contradiction, it is possible to be tough-minded and tender-hearted, to be obedient to the Lord in all areas of our lives, but then to be tender-hearted towards those who do not have Christ. And so we are not Stepford Wives at salvation. We're not programmed just to do work so that God will be pleased with us. No, we've been set free. We are freed people. And we're not bound by anyone or anyone's opinion. Today, church, I think this can apply to us when it comes to what's happening around us. And we pay attention to the news. We watch things that are going on. And here's what people around the church say. It makes me so angry to see people act this way. To be this way. To show such disrespect. I mean, this person kneels for their freedom or sits for their freedom. Why, these others have gone to fight for their freedom. And you're right. You're right. But church, it is not our job to get angry and pick up stones and start throwing them at others who don't hold the same views we hold. We want justice. Amen? Good grief. Amen? Amen. Come on, man. We want justice. We want the right thing to be done. But we also know that we live on a broken planet. Yesterday I had the wonderful opportunity of going to uh, make sure that we were installing our child seats just the right way. And so some wonderful police officers and uh, Georgia State Patrolmen were there um, in the local Walmart. We go there and they tell us what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. Boom, we get the check. Everything's good. We get into this conversation. And I say, can, can I just can I pray with you, men? Can I just draw you close? Can I just pray for you? And before I did that, I just I took the moment just to say, listen, you serve here on a broken planet. That's why you have a job. That's why you have a job. Sin abounds, but that's why you have a job. I'm going to pray for you and understand that freedom is found in Christ. There is justice. It is found in God. And what a joy it was to pray for these brothers who I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for the job that they do. But when we go into the community, we're there to preach Christ and let Christ divide the goat and the sheep. Nothing else, nothing else matters. 
Do you understand that, church? Goat, sheep. The goat will be cast away. The sheep will be received. That's it. That's it. Justice. Justice is found in Christ. He is the one who could have looked to the world and thrown a stone at every one of us and killed us. Instead, he came down. And he was beaten. He was bloodied. He was nailed to a cross. He gave his life so that we, church, could be set free. We should be a people who want justice, the right thing to be done, but we look through that lens through Christ Jesus. Mercy, we should have mercy on others. We should pray for other people. If you have enemies, pray for them. You have people who have hurt you, pray for them. What good does it do for us to be here every Sunday? to even come on Wednesdays, to be a part of a community group, to serve on a servanthood ministry team, to serve in student ministry or college ministry or children's ministry, to be at every event that we ever have. You're here. You're faithful. You can be called upon. You will answer when we need you. And yet you're showing unforgiveness towards others who have hurt you. I believe Jesus would say you're straining out a gnat while swallowing a camel. We should show mercy because no one has received greater mercy than us, church. This justice, this mercy and faithfulness that's mentioned. Say it this way. We ought to be faithful in all things. You know, the excuse doesn't hold when you say, but I tithe, so leave me alone. I give my money. What else do you want? (laughs) I don't want anything from you. I don't. God requires your life. Your everything. He owns you, Christian. You are his. You are his possession. Faithfulness to him daily. So, with that, I'm going to let you go from here and you examine your own life to see, okay, maybe it's not in giving for me. Maybe it's in something else that I'm thinking, hey, as long as I do this, I'm good, but in these other areas, I can just show neglect. Here's the examination. What areas are you neglecting right now? And understand this. These are the same men, these scribes and Pharisees. These are the same men that crucified Jesus but they would not enter into the halls of the Gentile people. Oh, we got to stop here, Pilate. We can't go any further. But we can crucify God. Are you a religious person with an irreligious heart? That's the heart of this text today. And if you are today, repent as anyone would repent of their sins and trust in the works of of Jesus Christ. I'm going to be standing in the back. We'll have some others standing in the back as well that you can come and
talk with us about following Jesus, if that's your desire, you can check on that card. I want to know more about following Christ. Or you say, you know what, I, I want to be connected in. I do. I want to serve. I want to be more plugged in. Then check one of those things on the card. Let us know. Let us follow up with you. That card is just a way for us to follow up with you. But at this time, maybe you need to come pray. Maybe you need to pray in your seat. Maybe you need to come pray up here with somebody and say, hey, let us pray together. Will you encourage me? Will you be the one who challenges me to stay faithful in these things as well? And may we go forth today as a generous people who serve a generous God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. And Lord, I just ask that as we've heard this fourth woe today, Lord, that we would not be so caught up in what others think of us, but Lord, that we would be consumed with your grace and your love and your mercy. We thank you for Jesus and what Christ did for us on the cross. No greater love was displayed than that. But may that be heavy on our hearts today. May we rejoice in this truth. God, may this lead us in serving you. Father, as we examine our hearts, we pray that the Holy Spirit would go forth to pierce hearts. And I pray for anyone in this room today that's not a Christ follower, God, that they would call out and repent and trust in Jesus. For all our hope is in Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.